Please let's go ahead and bow together for a word of, <coughs> a word of prayer. And then we will open up our Bibles to Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Let's bow for prayer, please. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that as we look into your word that you would speak to our hearts. Father, please feed our souls. Help us to think about the very practical implications of the things that we've talked about the last several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. As we work through these principles about how to love people in tough situations, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that the Word of God would speak for itself. And I pray that if there are some who are listening, whether here in person or on live stream tonight, um, who are in difficult situations, I pray that you would minister to their hearts. Please strengthen them and help them to uh, understand how to respond biblically to others uh, who are difficult. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, I'm going to talk about love tonight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Valentine's Day. However, it's principles to shape love in tough situations. <laughs> How to love people that are difficult. That's what we're going to actually be talking about um, tonight. And as I was looking at uh, Matthew 5, I, I kind of wanted to move uh, past the passage that we dealt with last week. Um, because I sometimes get bogged down and we spend a lot of weeks in passages. But I said, you know, this text here, I think we need to go a little bit deeper with it and we need to talk about it in very practical terms. And then I thought, well, you know, Valentine's Day being on Wednesday, then I absolutely have to do it now, right? So, Matthew 5, 43 to 48, here's what the scriptures say. Ye have heard that it hath been said... Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. If ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. I would say that if there was ever a day on our calendar where this verse, where it says, If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? that this is being presented today in our society on this day. It's this day. I mean, why do people uh, choose to get married to someone? It's generally because they take a step and that other person reciprocates that and they're like, hey, this is going to be great. Let's get married, all right? Why do people stay married? Well, it's because they choose to love one another in a godly way. And that's how people have a marriage that is built and that is strengthened. And so I'd like us to talk about some of the tough scenarios that we may find ourselves in. And obviously there are, there are an unbelievable number of scenarios we could possibly get into. And so rather than saying, all right, what about this situation, this and this and this, let's look at some practical principles that are specifically applying this instruction here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And so I'll summarize the text again. I'll remind you of what we talked about last week. And then we're going to work our way through these principles one at a time. And I hope that they'll be very helpful to you. 
So the text in front of us reminds us that we are to love our neighbors, not just the good, but also the evil, the difficult, the ones that trouble us. Because we're to love like our Heavenly Father loves His enemies. As Christians, we're supposed to be channels of God's love to other people. And so last week we saw there are a couple of things that he emphasized. One is, he says that we are to love them. This is a description of disposition. It's something that's internal. And as we get into these principles, one of them is really going to focus in on that statement. Love them from the heart. We're not to harbor a personal animosity towards other people. Rather, we are to love them. The second statement is to bless them rather than going around and undermining a person and speaking evil of them when they've given us a lot of reasons maybe to be able to do that. We should speak as well of them as we possibly can. The third statement was do good to them. This describes the actions we are to actively take toward them. Doing good according to God's standard of righteousness. And we're going to get into this a little bit. Just because I'm doing good to an individual doesn't mean that they necessarily perceive it as good. And I'm going to give you some examples of that. Sometimes love is tough. Love has to establish boundaries. Love has to push back. Sometimes love has to state things that a person doesn't want to hear. And there is a principle there that we're going to unpackage. But when I have to say something that is difficult for a person to hear, it needs to be appropriate and it needs to be true and needed in the situation. And then the last statement is to pray for them. Take the situation to God and ask him to intervene for good. And when I say for good, I don't mean like it's going to be good for me and it's going to be bad for them. It's God, work in this situation so that you are glorified in my life and glorified in their life. That we would see God do good on both sides. That should be the desire. So remember those four statements. To do good to them, to pray for them, to love them. These statements are, well, there was a fourth one, or a second one, bless them. Let's remember those. And then there are two key passages I want to draw your attention to. I'm going to, I'm going to draw from these passages several times throughout this section that we're going to work on. But we're not just going to stay exclusively in these two passages. The first one is 1 Corinthians 13. And we know this is the love chapter, right? And verse 40 says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And we're going to see that that passage of scripture is taking Christ's statement in Matthew chapter 5, and he's giving us several practical statements that are really principles that help us to understand how to practically love other people. The difficult ones, the ones that are hard to love, the the ones that frustrate us, the ones that cause us grief. And then the other one is one that we've dealt with already, but I want to read it again. That is Romans 12, verses 14 to 21. He says, bless them which persecute you. That's exactly what Jesus said. Bless and curse not. 
he says, condescend to men of low estate. That is a fascinating statement, and I'm going to kind of break it down when we get to it. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. Verse 20. If thine enemy be hungry, feed him. If he be thirsty, give him drink. And so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So when Paul writes that in Romans and when he writes that in 1 Corinthians, he's really taking the statements that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount and he's applying them very practically, very specifically. And so let's get into it. All right, so there are eight principles we're going to look at. Probably not all tonight, but uh, we're going to work our way through eight of them. And the first principle is this. Love is patient with difficult people. All right? Simple principle. Love is patient with difficult people. In verse 4 it says, Charity suffereth long. All right? Do I really need to expound that? Charity suffereth long. When you love a person in a godly and biblical way, you are willing to bear under the burden and the trouble of having to deal with them, though they are difficult. Patience is a Christian virtue that is both developed and demonstrated in difficulty. God wants every person in this room. He wants me, he wants you to be a people who have godly character. He doesn't want us to just stay neutral in the Christian life. He just saves us and says, you know, live however you want. That's not what God does. He wants to take us from being babes in Christ, little children. And he wants us to mature so that we become more and more like Christ in the way that we think and live in our character. And one of those virtues that God desires to de develop in us is this virtue of patience. And patience is something that does not happen in a vacuum. Patience is something that is developed through process. In the same way that someone who wants to get stamina is going to have to run, they're going to have to push themselves, or someone who wants to get stronger, they're going to have to go to the gym, get on a program, they might have to have somebody that encourages them through the process, and they gradually, incrementally, they develop strength as they increase the tension that they're dealing with. In the same way that the coach does this, in the same way that the trainer does this, God does this in our lives. And by the way, even as parents, we do this with our children. I hammer this over and over and over again with my kids. That you are becoming the kind of adult you're going to be right now. Well, I'm only seven. It doesn't matter. You are being shaped right now. And if you don't develop the right kind of character now, don't think that you're magically going to change when you're 25. It is not going to happen. And so there's this process where we are working with them in this formative stage. God does the same thing with us. Patience is a virtue that is developed and it is revealed. How do you know if you're patient? How do other people know if you're patient? There's only one way. It's got to be tested. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's true. Okay. You could, you could walk into the gym and say, oh, I'm the strongest guy in this gym. And everybody goes, prove it. Come on over to the bench. Let's see what you can do. All right. Let's, let's throw a couple of 
discs on there and see what you can do. Well, I don't think I could do three of them. Well, you said you're strong. What's, what, what are you talking about? You've got to demonstrate it. How do you demonstrate a quality like patience? Well, God gives you lots of opportunities. And some of those opportunities are the people that bug you and they trouble you and they wear you down. God uses the circumstances of life that get us so frustrated to develop us and to demonstrate that. Think about what it says in James. It says, let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect. Talking about full maturity, lacking in nothing. So sometimes for our own good, God will allow us to encounter difficult people to develop this grace in us. Now, I would say for the most part, God just allows these things to unfold. But God may actually bring people into our lives who we're going to have to work through things with. And they're going to be trouble for us and we're going to be trouble for them. And God's going to use us in each other's lives to develop these things. This grace is developed as we respond biblically to difficult circumstances. So I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Because in Colossians 3, we're going to see how this principle that love is patient with difficult people. Charity suffereth long. How it is laid out in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we'll start in verse number 12. He says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of kindness, of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God Rule in your hearts. Now, this passage of scripture is so rich. It is full of so much rich truth. And if we want to love like Christ is telling us, we've got to take the statements in this verse or these verses seriously. And we've got to apply them practically in the real life situations that we're dealing with. It could be your spouse sometimes. It could be your children sometimes. It could be your parents sometimes. It could be somebody you work with who's over you or under you or somebody that you live around, whatever the situation, an extended family member, someone who once was a friend and now they've become an enemy. I don't know, okay? There are lots and lots of different scenarios where this is going to come to play. So notice these statements. I'm not going to actually deal with all the statements, just the ones that I think are pertinent to this statement that love is patient with difficult people. The first thing I want you to notice is the basis of the command. He says, put on as the elect of God. Now, it's a real simple way of saying, if you're a Christian, then you're supposed to do this. That's really what he's saying. He goes as the elect of God, and he says the words holy and beloved, because that word holy is describing the position of the Christian, he set apart to God. And that word beloved is talking about God's disposition toward the one who's in that position. Okay, so that word elect has the idea of you're called out of the world, called out unto God. That word holy has the idea that you're separated unto God. And that word beloved means God loves you. He has set his love upon you. So he basically says this, because this is true about you in your position, this is how you're supposed to live. So, if you're not a Christian, I guess you're off the hook, right? 
well, until you meet God on judgment day. But if you're a Christian, he's saying, separated into God, called out of the world, beloved, you need to think about how God's dealt with you. And that should shape how you relate to people. Second thing, he, he, he really describes the depth of this virtue in some very uh, graphic ways, I might say. He says, put on bowels of mercies. Now, we don't talk like this as uh, English-speaking people because uh, bowels of mercy. We go, what, what in the world does that mean? Well, another way to put that is that you're supposed to have deep-seated affection in your heart for that person. Okay? When he talks about bowels of mercy, he's saying, you feel this compassion in your guts, in your innermost part of who you are as a person. You say, they trouble me, so I don't feel bowels of mercy. I feel bowels of anger, <laughs> frustration, anxiety. All right, I understand that. But that's not the way that God tells us where to respond. Put on bowels of mercy. In other words, you have a choice to make. To choose to have compassion toward that person. Or those circumstances, or toward individuals, whatever the situation and then he says, put on long-suffering. I mean, that's a compound word. Suffering, long. <laughs> okay, we see what it is. I'm bearing under this load. I'm bearing under this burden because of the situation I find myself in. And then there's a third statement. Forbearing one another. Now, the idea of that is instead of me lashing out, being vindictive, which is the most natural thing that we do. It's, it's not hard to be vindictive. Okay? Nobody's got to teach you how to do it. <laughs> Nobody had to teach me how to be like that. Nobody's had to teach you how to do that. We've had to teach people how to not be that way. How to control our emotions and not say things that are just going to inflame the situation worse. We have to be taught and convinced that we need to do that too, I would even say. But those are the three statements. Put on bowels of mercy, put on long suffering, forbear one another. Is giving you the depths of this virtue of patience. And then he gives us the example. He says, even as Christ forgave you, so do ye also. Now, we know that we're forgiven people because we're Christians. And we understand what it was like, maybe, and, and for, for every person, when they came to understand the gospel and trusted Christ... That process of coming to understand before you believed might have looked different. So, you know, if you grew up in a Christian home, you may not even remember a time where you weren't convinced that you were a Christian or that you were a sinner and that you needed to be saved. Okay? Your, your earliest memories may be, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Okay? If you're older, maybe you had to have somebody lay out the scriptures to you over and over and over and over again. And progressively you became more and more convinced and convicted. I'm a sinner separated from a holy God. <coughs> I need to be saved. But here is the focus here. God forgave you and he was patient with you until you came to the point where the, there was a repentance toward God, a humbling of the heart and placing your faith in Christ. When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were the enemies of God and we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So when he says, be patient, he's saying, well, just look at me as the example. 
(laughs) I'm the example. That's what Jesus is saying. The last thing I'll mention here under this principle is that the guiding principle that should shape our response is let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, this little state, this is a verse that I think sometimes is misunderstood. I remember there was a time when I was, you know, maybe in high school, college, that in my mind what this was saying is if I want to make a decision, I want to know which way I'm supposed to go, I've got to like get some kind of guidance from God so I know I'm supposed to do that. But there's nothing in this passage of scripture that would lead you to believe that that's the reason he says let the peace of God rule in your hearts. He's talking about conflict with other people. He's talking about when there's friction and there's tension. He's talking about being patient and having compassion and forbearing people. That's what he's talking about. So it has nothing to do with how do I know I'm supposed to do this or that. That word let the peace of God rule has the idea like an umpire. I played baseball when I was in high school. Love baseball. Well, I did. I don't know. I don't have the time to watch it anymore, right? And that umpire, he'd sit there behind home plate and he'd call balls and strikes. He'd say, oh, ball one. If I was pitching, I'm like, no, that, that caught the corner. Ball two. Strike. Okay? He's calling what he sees. And so he's saying, the way that you respond to people needs to be guided by a principle. The peace of God. You say, well, what's that? You were an enemy to God. You were a sinner who's been saved by grace. And that enmity between you and God was removed by his grace. His love for you. He sent his son to the cross. He was nailed to the cross so that the enmity could be removed. And so he's saying, listen. You need to remember you have peace with God and you need to pursue peace with other people. That's what he's saying. Principle number two. Oh, that was the easy one, right? Oh, they get worse. (laughs) They get harder. (laughs) And there's eight of them. But not progressively harder, right? Principle two. Love is kind to difficult people. Anybody in here, one of those people that just doesn't have the gift of kindness? I don't raise your hand. (laughs) Oh, I see somebody like wanting to put... (laughs) Not empathetic person, just not naturally inclined to being the mercy type. I think some people are more naturally empathetic than others. Some people, it's black and white, man. You, you did wrong, I'm going to tell you you did wrong, and I don't want to hear any excuses. Let's deal with this issue. And there's others like, well, you know, I wonder what they were thinking when they did that. And, and okay, I know that there's a little bit of that dispositionally in people. But when he says, kind... He's not saying a natural disposition. He's talking about something that bugs you. Somebody that really, really makes life difficult. And you just want to lash out. He says, be kind. Be kind. In the immediate context of this discussion, notice some of the things that Jesus said back in Matthew 5. Matthew 5.45, he says... That ye may be the children of your father. Again, he's not talking about how you become a Christian, okay? Or you become a Christian by being kind to people. That's not what he's saying. Some people actually kind of take that approach. You become a Christian by trusting in Christ alone. But how do people know you're a Christian? How are they convinced that in fact what you say to be true is true? Well, they watch you and they say, you know what? I see a life that is conformed to a position. I see this consistency here. Not perfection, okay. 
That's not how I stand before God. That's not where my confidence lies. But somebody who is evaluating you claim to be a Christian, they look at your life and they say, I see that in fact you do resemble your father. I think that's what he means when he says that you may be the children of your father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sendeth his rain on the just and on the unjust. Lots of people who despise God, they don't think twice about him. They, he, he's not on their minds and he's good to them. Lots of people who are not Christians live fairly decent lives. There are people, they get married, they raise children, they have good jobs, they live in nice houses, they drive nice cars, they live a life of general ease, they are mostly healthy most of their life, they enjoy a lot of good things, and God allows them those things, even though they they don't think twice about who gave it to them. And God would have every right to say, you know, if you're going to be ungrateful and you're not going to glorify me and you're not going to turn to me, I'm going to make your life miserable. He'd have every right to do that. But he's not like that. He's kind. Matthew 5, 48, he says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. These are tough sayings. Especially when you're in a situation that's not easy. Psalm 145 verse 9, it says that the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. And then I take you back to the Colossians passage. We already read it, so I'm not going to reread it, but I want to draw your attention to three statements, three words. The first word is the word kindness, okay? He says, put on bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind meekness you know what meekness is meekness is basically the the opposite of just being responding based on a fleshly response there is control okay a person who is meek has that strength controlled they're measured in in the right way they're being guided by principle rather than by impulse that's the idea and so in the Colossians passage, he's not just emphasizing the, the fact that you have to be, be patient with people, but that you need to be kind to them, that you need to have a humble attitude towards them. You say, well, I'm the one who actually is morally superior here because they wronged me. I didn't wrong them. Okay, anybody ever thought that before? Yeah, probably. That's usually why things continue. It's like both sides are thinking that they have taken the high ground. And in fact, that's not true. But you, you humble yourself. Put yourself in their shoes. Think about where they're at. Meekness. Rather than just being impulsive, there's a measuredness. One of the greatest examples in the Bible is the story of Joseph. We know Joseph's life. And I think that the older I get, the more I begin to really process what Joseph went through in ways that, you know, as a kid, you're in Sunday school class and you hear the story of Joseph. Oh, he went to prison. And he was elevated in the prison and he was sold as a slave by his brothers, but at least he didn't die in the pit. And, and you know, I know he was lied about by Potiphar's wife, and, but then he's the most powerful person beside the Pharaoh. And in our minds, we don't think about like what it would have felt like to be in that situation. I mean, you know how I many people, when you have conversations with them as adults, they can't get over the fact that their brother disrespected them when they were a kid? 
or they had a poor relationship with dad or mom and that just seems to like drag them drag alongside of them all throughout life and they just can't get past it they refuse to get past it and it just it just hounds them and Joseph's brother sold him as a slave they wanted to kill him and that they're like well just let's make some money off of him and we'll lie and tell dad and then he does the right thing and he's thrown in prison and he's forgotten in prison if there was anybody that could have gone into the years of being an adult with a bitterness in his heart a chip on his shoulder and could have been a miserable adult it's joseph and that's what most people do when they're in those situations and then he has power and opportunity to crush his brothers i mean crush them and they knew it and in genesis 50 verse 18 his brothers fell down before his face and they said behold we be thy servants why did they do that well they were convinced he's like us he has his opportunity to destroy us to get revenge in their minds, he's probably been thinking about this his whole life since the time that we got rid of him. And something that nobody would have ever believed could have happened is going to happen. He now has the opportunity to take vengeance. And what does he say? He says, fear not. For am I in the place of God? <coughs> As for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not. Now there's more there but I'm going to pause for a second. Joseph could have said you know I'm going to spare your lives. Go back to Canaan and don't ever come back. <laughs> I don't want to see your face. I have showed you mercy. And I think a lot of people would have applauded his, uh, his willingness to let them go. That's not what he did. He could have said, all right, I would like to see my dad before he dies. So bring him so I can see him. And then don't come near me. I want to see dad, but I don't want to see you guys. Not too many people be upset with him about that. It's not what he said. He says, fear ye not, I will. What's the next word? Nourish. I'll nourish you. Wow. That's a powerful word. I'll nourish you and your little ones. He comforted them and spake kindly unto them. That is pretty stunning, isn't it? I mean, it's stunning he didn't kill them. It's stunning that he, that he didn't just say, okay, I'm going to spare you, but go back. I don't want to talk to you again. It's stunning that he didn't say, bring dad and then go back. Or bring dad, I want to spend time with dad because he had nothing to do with this. But then go somewhere where I don't have to do it. He could have done all those things. He says, I want to nourish you and comfort you. And he spoke kindly to them. And that is a, that is a, a powerful example of grace. That is a powerful example of grace. And you know what that tells me? That tells me it's actually possible to do that. Okay, Joseph wasn't Jesus. <laughs> He's not a perfect man. He was a sinner just like you and I are. Some would even argue that he kind of provoked his brothers when he was a young guy. And didn't even really realize what he was doing. 
If Joseph could do that, we can too. And God may put us in a position where we have that before us. I'm going to do one last principle so that we get through three. Because every preacher has to do three points, right? No poems tonight, sorry. Principle three. Love does not assume the worst where the facts are not yet established. Now, notice something. There are several statement, or parts to that, that that have a bit of a qualification side to them. Notice the word assume, okay? Assume the worst. And then we have the statement, facts are not yet established, okay? <clears throat> Sometimes we have a situation in front of us and where it looks like it's going is in fact where it will go, okay? That happens. Sometimes a situation in front of us looks like it's going somewhere, and it's not. And part of the reason that we think it's going there is because we almost want it to. We've actually kind of blinded ourselves to being able to look at something objectively. Or we've only gotten a piece of the story, and that piece of the story, we immediately latch onto it, And that latching onto it is something that becomes very detrimental. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Now, what I think that Paul is saying about this is that when a person is dealing with a troublesome individual or troublesome circumstances or something appears to be a certain way, rather than immediately going and saying, I know that's what it is. He waits. He's not provoked to where he's just going to respond in a fleshly and emotional way. He's not going to assume the worst about the situation. He's going to wait. He's going to get the facts. We, we have a society that doesn't understand this principle. Okay? It's not just the Christian world that struggles with this. Oh, I heard it on the news. It's got to be true. You heard something on the news that is giving you a part of the story. And that part of the story may actually be the truth. It might not be the truth. In fact, you may find out through some investigations the exact opposite of what you just heard. Somebody comes to you with an accusation. I saw this. I heard this. This is the truth. And they lay out their story. It sounds so compelling. But you ask a couple of questions and you start realizing, well, there's some inconsistencies here. You've connected some dots that the facts don't necessarily connect. You've got to get into this situation. And so here is a principle that we all need to follow. We need to get the facts before we make judgment about something. This is so important. Now, I think all of us understand this principle when somebody's judging us about a matter, okay? Somebody says, I think you did such and such. You're like, no, I didn't. How dare you come to that? that, Well, I heard this and I heard this and I saw this. And you say, but what about this and this and this and this? Don't make up your mind until you know the facts. We all assume that people should do that with us. Well, if we understand that it's true for us, we should do the same with others. And what this means is you have to learn to control your emotions and the impulse to make a quick judgment. In Proverbs 18, 13, here's what it says. He that answereth a matter before he heareth it 
it is folly and shame to him. You say, well, how do you answer matter before you hear it if you've heard it? He's saying, you haven't heard the whole story. You've only heard a little piece. You know, even in the Old Testament law, there was built into that law expectations that the accusation of one person saying, oh, I saw this, they did this. That was not enough to bring a charge against a person. You know why that was? Because anybody can say anything. Anybody who wants to destroy another person can throw out an accusation. And if there's no burden to demonstrate with some collaboration that something has taken place, guess what? People can, can do some chaotic things. You've got to hear the facts before you make judgment. Proverbs 18, 17. Just a couple verses later, he says, He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him out. Oh, if you've raised children, <laughs> you, you know. You hear some noise down in the basement, upstairs, or in another part of the house, out in the yard, and there's chaos, and you go, hey, what's going on? And that first kid that comes running up, this is what happened. And you're like, oh, I can't believe that happened. And then another sibling comes around and says, oh, no, no, that's not what happened. And they start telling you uh, more things, and you go, whoa, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Let's get all the facts. And you start, you know, cross-examining. You become, you become a lawyer and a judge, okay? All right. What's, what's he saying? He's saying, you know, when, when somebody wants to convince you of something, they're going to give you all the facts that they want you to hear. They may withhold some things that you needed to know in order to make the judgment properly. So you know what love does? Love says, I value this person, and before I assume the worst, I'm going to make sure that the facts say that's what it is. I'm not going to go there first. I'm going to withhold judgment by the way, this is a principle that involves both love and just straight up wisdom, okay? When a judge is, 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 is listening to a case or people are, are in a court of law and they're hearing it, it's not about them loving the person as much as saying, hey, our job is to you know, call it what it is. But if you love a person, guess what? You're going to do that. Don't allow your bias to hinder you from seeing a matter clearly. Now, this is an interesting statement made in Matthew chapter 7. We'll get there eventually in the Sermon on the Mount. Who knows when, but we'll get there eventually. I mean, Matthew 7 verse 5, he says, he says, before you make a judgment, he says, first, cast out the beam in thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. This is a really important principle. The principle is this. If you do not stop... And make sure your sight is clear before you make judgment, then your judgment will have problems. And I keep borrowing from our legal system, which is supposed to be built on truth and facts, right? Well, if someone is going to go and sit on a jury, guess what? They interview those people before they go on that jury. And they interview them because they want to ask the question, does this person have a bias that would presuppose them to either see that person as innocent or guilty without looking at the facts. Their lawyers are the ones who do these evaluations. Why do they do that? Well, because we understand that people bring bias and blind spots into judgments that they make. And especially if someone has been causing trouble for you, you're, you're, you're very likely to see them in the worst light possible. It's just the truth. 
Let's say you have a kid next door. He's always messing with stuff. I'm sure nobody in this room, I see this is a safe illustration because nobody in this room has a situation like this. Now, maybe it's my neighbor asking me about my kid, but they, you know, this kid's always messing with stuff. And then something bad happens on your property. Oh, I know who did it. It was that kid next door. That kid next door. He did it. You have no idea. Did, did, you, did you see it on, a, on your closed circuit television? No. Did somebody tell you that it happened? No. Well, then how do you know? Well, because I know that kid. He gets into stuff. Well, guess what? If you didn't see it, nobody said he did it. He hasn't said he did it. Then just leave the kid alone. Okay? You have no proof. When somebody is giving you grief, you start seeing the worst in them. And so, love doesn't assume the worst when the facts are not yet established. The last thing I'll mention under this is that we have to act with a right spirit. In Proverbs 3, 3, I'm going I'm to mention this on, a, on another principle. It says, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. What he's saying is that your attitude affects how you see things. It's just the truth. I'm going to see things a certain way if my attitude is predisposed against an individual. And so when it comes to dealing with a situation, I need to know what the facts are. My heart needs to be right. That's the mercy side. The truth side is what are the facts? And so let's remember these three principles. Principle one, go back. Love is patient with difficult people. Principle two, love is kind to difficult people. Principle three, love does not assume the worst where the facts are not yet established. My prayer is that the Lord will help us with this. And I will say there are many, many times in life that if we would follow simple principles like this, we could actually resolve issues that we blow up. It's really true. May the Lord help us to do that. Not to blow things up. To follow these rules, these principles. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you help us to have godly love for other people. Help us to learn to be patient. Help us to be kind. Help us not to rush to judgments about others. Help us to not become biased and blinded because of our frustration with individuals. Help us to be willing to cast out the beam in our eyes so that we can see clearly to help someone with a speck in theirs. I pray that you'll help us to be people who live consistent with the position that we enjoy in Christ, that we would live in a way towards others that points them to our Savior who has loved us when we didn't know him and we didn't love him and we were his enemies. Help us to see our relationship strengthened because we are applying the scriptures biblically. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen.